You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Hey everyone, Mike Brazier here, your co-host of the DU Podcast. This is just a quick reminder that the episode you were about to hear was recorded prior to the coronavirus. Today we have an episode, the first in a three-part series, where we sat down with Jerry Holden to discuss all the important conservation and fundraising work that uh, we are doing in Ducks Unlimited's southern region. Noticeably absent from that conversation, of course, will be any mention of the coronavirus. And so uh, just keep in mind, this was recorded prior to that. Still a lot of great information, so we wanted to continue to bring this message uh, to you nonetheless. We'll try to have Jerry on again sometime in the future to give us an update on all of this great work. In the meantime, we thank you again for listening and for all your support in these most unprecedented times. So here's your episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Thanks for joining us again here on the podcast. On this episode, we have a guest in studio. We're welcoming in Jerry Holden, our Director of Operations from the Southern Region. That's one of the neat things about having all of our, our little studio, if you call it that, here at headquarters, is that a lot of times we get some visitors from across the across the organization and even outside the organization, and we have an opportunity to pull them in and just sort of off the cuff have a conversation with them about something. So, Jerry, thanks for taking time out of your schedule here to, to spend, some, uh, spend a few minutes with us. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. We'll start off here just talking generally about a number of things. You, uh, you've been on some podcasts before. Uh, we're going to eventually we'll get to a conversation about the southern region, some of the conservation efforts that are underway there and our priorities w- within the region. But I think we just want to take some time to, to talk uh, one to another. You used to actually be my supervisor whenever I was, uh, whenever my position was run out of the southern region. And so it's kind of neat to sort of have this conversation with you. Um, so we'll start out just with, uh, actually, we're going to start out with a, with a few questions. You weren't aware of this, so I'm kind of springing this on you. So yesterday when I, I kind of knew we were going to have you here, I sent an email to some of our comrades and said, here's your opportunity to ask Jerry some questions. So the first question I have comes from, it's kind of like a Q&A with Jerry Holden. First question comes from Tom Mormon. He says, why does our miniature schnauzer love everyone but seems to think Jerry Holden is Darth Vader? What's the story behind that? So the miniature schnauzer's name is Mowgli, and I actually don't know the answer to that. But that, that, that dog barks at me incessantly and frenetically unless I touch it. If I touch him, he chills out. So the real question is, why does Tom Mormon, our chief scientist, have a miniature schnauzer? Is that, is that fair? The, the answer is because Tom Mormon is married. Ah, okay. Well, there we go. So, Jerry, you, uh, as I've mentioned to you, you have a pretty interesting story of, of having, how you came to Ducks Unlimited. So, And we all have our stories of how we got into this field, how we were first attracted to the natural resources and, and 
the path that that took us to to a career in natural resource conservation and management. So there's an opportunity to just hear about yours. I, I know you grew up in Kansas. Uh, so so just take us through that. What was your childhood like? What were your, your experiences as a child that exposed you to the outdoors? And, and where did we go from there? So I was raised um, uh, in a yeah, family that was associated with the United States Army, and um, my dad, super grateful to him. He wasn't he wasn't raised in a family that waterfowl hunted, and so he figured it out. And he took his firstborn son, me, and um, somewhere about the time I was eleven or so, I shot my first uh, mallard on a Kansas Department of Wildlife and Fisheries uh, property that became a DU project later. We locally known as the beaver ponds. I won't tell you any more about it. I only bail something there, but, um, shot that duck and something happened. And, and in that, um, I, I bonded with my dad in some complicated ways and it was all, all became a place where we could spend time together, it became the most important thing in my life was sort of suffering through school in order to get to, uh, some consumptive arena, um, most especially and favorably waterfowl. And um, so I went to school, high school, like everybody else, and I wanted to have a conservation job. And the only one that I knew existed was a game warden. And so uh, as as you will do in the days before the internet, you call or you figure out what, what what's a game warden get paid. And the answer was $16,100 a year. I remember this because it shocked me. Even then, that would have been about 1985. And uh, I was like, wow. And so I gave up my dream of working in conservation in that moment and um, w- went to school. That didn't go so well, despite having been a pr- really good high school student. That didn't go so well. So I uh, was working for Walmart and was really successful in getting promoted within Walmart. Turns out that I had a knack for personnel management, conflict resolution, merchandising, the things it takes to make a Walmart store run. And and did that for a number of years and really enjoyed it, moved all over the place, set a bunch of new stores in, in places that I now travel to. And um, one day in 93, I was uh, thinking about how unsatisfied I was with just doing a job that made money and that I really wanted to work in conservation. It had been a truth, just a truth that I had chosen to ignore for a little while. And so uh, I retired because I had seven years in. I retired and took my profit sharing stock and liquidated everything, bought myself a new truck, put the rest in the bank and, and paid for myself to go back to school. Had to, had, I vividly remember driving to see the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences wearing my best double-breasted suit, as was the fashion in the day, and um, begging to get back into school at a 1.1 GPA. I remember Dean Fireharm saying, I can't let you back into school. You're, you're obviously, you know, incapable of, of success here. And I said, sir, if you just give me a chance, I'll get into grad school because by then I'd had time to figure out what it took to have a conservation career. And, uh, he said, I doubt it, but okay. And uh, he let me into school and I was able to do it. I was able by, by getting straight A's through all of undergrad, uh, I was able to get into graduate school. So I was training dogs. And then uh, so then I went to work um, in North Dakota for the Department of Defense for the United States Air Force, 319 Civil Engineering Squadron out of Grand Forks, North Dakota. And then I just happened to see a job uh, open at Ducks Unlimited, Southern Region, 
Dr. Tom Mormon, who at the time was a conservation planner for that region back in the late 90s, really thought that he needed to understand the spatial distribution and frequency of waterfowl habitat in some key landscapes. And DU had had an idea of how to do that because we'd done some of the stuff in Alaska. And so we had some idea, but this was different. This was mostly understanding water. In, in some ways, uh, sort of derivative processes that still go on today. Was that one of the first applications of that satellite imagery? To, probably was within within our organization. Like you said, it's now it's now kind of old hat. We do it every year all over the landscape. But that was probably one of the first times that that had been occur, applied. Turns out when we were in Long Grove, Illinois, some really smart people had figured out that satellites were really handy for waterfowl habitat. It just hadn't been applied. Um, it was applied more in a mapping sense um, to get a sense of what was out there. Whereas the thing that we worked on was was the much of the temporal aspects of how how much is out there and how often is it out there and what's in it for the duck. Yeah. So Tom Mormon had that idea, and so one of the ways I want you to think about it is that satellites become the sensory organs for our conservation planners. Right? They help them see in ways that they can't they can't otherwise see and understand things at scale that they couldn't have otherwise understood. And aircraft can do some of that, but then it, you have to do it in a, in a way that you can make statistical inferences about that. And the satellite has some advantages and some disadvantages. And so then I came to work doing that. Um, and then the, the rest of my DU career has just progressed in a series of progressively responsible administrative jobs to today. Uh, I run the Southern Region for Ducks Unlimited. You know, you've you worked in Jackson, the Mississippi Alluvia Valley. You also spent some time on the Gulf Coast, right? So you're familiar with that, intimately familiar with that landscape of Louisiana and Texas. And, and have you resided in any other location in the southern region during your time with DU? No, not during my time for DU. So I've only lived in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Monroe, Louisiana, Lafayette, Louisiana, and then back to Jackson, Mississippi. And so now you are the director of the Southern Region. You've been in that uh, in that position for two and a half years, something around there. Three years, yeah. Very good to have you in that uh, in that position. By all by all accounts, I hear things are going quite well there. So uh, kudos. That's right. Things are are going great. The 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 business of of Ducks Unlimited in the South is in a great place. But I just uh, I think it's useful that we ground ourselves. And realize that the $45 million worth of business that the Southern region does today is about one one really good-sized Walmart. That's about how much business it does. Puts it in, into perspective, doesn't it? Rather starkly for me, right, uh, at, though we strive so hard, um, we still we still struggle with, um, with a conservation footprint and um, – fiscal resources that allow us to respond to the threats that we deal with every day. It's almost a scale issue. You kind of have to, to, for perspective, scaling what our annual revenue is within a given region relative to some other um, some other factor. We, we kind of did this with Scott Stevens on a, on a recent episode where we talked about the amount of land holdings that DU Canada has. And, and it, on the surface, it sounds like a lot, but whenever you scale it up against the a hundred plus million acres of cropland and ranch land in Prairie Canada alone. You're like, holy cow. You know, it, it just emphasizes the importance of, or it emphasizes the scale of the challenges that we face and why it's really, uh, why the work that we do is, well, it's, it's laudable, it's rewarding and it's challenging. We're the ideological descendants of some really visionary people that thought that you could source private capital and inject it. If you injected it just right, 
into the ecological bottlenecks for the birds on the landscape that you could make a population difference. And it turns out they were right. What they meant, they thought that $5 million would do it in their foundational meetings, right? We know this. Well, that wasn't the case because they missed this important fact. When DU was founded, there was whatever, 125 million Americans. If we looked it up now, it'd be 329 million Americans. And those 329 million Americans haven't held their standard of living steady. So they require more resources per family. And what that does is it creates significant head, headwinds for wild things and wild places and Ducks Unlimited's mission. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. I want to I want to shift gears here a little bit to talk uh, about personal experiences here this year um, that we are we're recording this uh, in, in in February 2020. And so I just want to reflect on on your hunting season. We can have a Q&A here. I, I think both you and I took a trip to Canada, separate trips to Canada. We tried to do that occasionally. We also had some limited experiences hunting in the South this year. But uh, so just starting out, what would your experiences like this year? I know you had some challenges personally with respect to access to hunting locations. Yeah. So, uh, so we started the year in, in taking a trip to Saskatchewan and I've been hunting the same part of Saskatchewan. I think it's this eight seasons in going about to the same places and it's been getting progressively drier. And this year, because of uh, some work commitments, I had to slide the trip back to earlier in September. And so the harvest had just barely ensued. And so we had a combination of, of a lot of dry wetland basins and a lot of fields, almost all the fields were standing in grain. And so it was a significant challenge to be able to hunt waterfowl. We were pretty darn successful given the factors that we faced, um, b- but I've had better trips if you measure it by harvest. But at 52 years old tomorrow, I'm in, I'm in a place where uh, it's the experience and the people I spend it with is a little more important than how how many dead birds I put on the ground. And then that's similar to our experience. I went to <clears throat> went to Canada with some some uh, friends and colleagues and coworkers. And we went to actually Southern Manitoba. We went, I believe it was the second week of October and we tried to hunt Delta Marsh there and there weren't a great number of birds around, but this is also an example of where the experience, the experience was far more rewarding and memorable than the actual number of ducks that we bagged, that we harvested. Because uh, if folks will remember, in October of 2019, they had this massive snowstorm come through the prairies. And the one of the epicenters, at least the epicenter for some of the strong winds, was right there at the southern end of Lake Manitoba where we were. And uh, the short version of that story is that if it weren't for gadwall, we probably would have, our harvest would have been cut in half. So we went to Manitoba and shot gadwalls. The other part was that we ended up uh, being without power for like two days. Thankfully, the place where we were staying had uh, had propane, had a propane tank outside. So we were able to, uh, we were able to heat the place and we were able to cook. And then, then fortunately, the caretaker there 
saved us and saved the building by bringing a small generator to run the sump pump because when the power goes out, the sump pumps don't work. And in that kind of a landscape, the water starts coming up through the basement. So uh, the memories are rich from that trip. You, uh, you almost had a Donner Party experience. It was this, <laughs> it was this close. It was, uh, it was something. Uh, yet one of those experiences that you're glad you made it through, but you don't really look to, to repeat it. Uh, and so then coming back south here, I live in Memphis now. I grew up in North Mississippi, as listeners of the show will know by now. I talk about that often, reference it often. And I had an opportunity to, to go back to some of my old stomping grounds and try to hunt a little and just didn't do, uh, didn't do very well there. Uh, actually ended up being way more successful in the big game this year. Ended up uh, killing four deer, and so that filled the freezer and killed a few ducks while we were at it. But, yeah, otherwise a challenging year, but uh, but that's okay. You know, you have some good years, you have some bad years. And so the, the next thing I did duck season-wise was hunt in Kansas when I went home to see my my family across Thanksgiving. And I assume it's, it's entered the American consciousness to some degree, but we had a rather historic flood for most of 19, uh, 2019 in the Mississippi River and, and its tributaries. And well, that happens to be where I went to go hunt. And we had abysmal habitat conditions. It, it, it can't get any worse. Just water and mud. The vegetation used to be a plant and now it was in a state of decay and there wasn't much there for ducks. Yet we were able to kill. Um, we had a couple of pretty nice mallard shoots. Um, makes you pull out all the tricks in the bag that you know as a waterfowler to get that stuff to work. And the best part was I got to hunt with my best friend uh, we met when, when we were in fifth grade and then my son who will be 14 next month and my nephew who is 14. So we got to take the kids hunting and had a couple of good hunts. And um, the rest of the hunts we made were not good as in not worth mentioning, but we also had some ice conditions, which is um, adds a little flavor to that whole experience. But we got to take the kids out. We killed a few ducks. It was pretty good. Now I'm going to ask you a question that as a, as a scientist, it's, it's a question I hate the most because because whenever somebody asks me a question, I want to be able to back it up with with a good amount of data. Well, this is the type of question which to get good, reliable data is almost impossible. So, uh, but nevertheless, we're in this field. We work. You and I both work for Ducks Unlimited. Hunters are some of our strongest constituents and supporters, uh, and we interact with them often. So, the question to you is: based on the folks that you intera- interacted with and that you you heard from. What's your overall sense of hunting success across the southern region this year? And I shouldn't say hunting success because that kind of frames the answer, but just hunting conditions, bird numbers, hunting success. Let's just throw all those in there together. So the southern region, is a, uh, when you think longitudinally, is a really big place. The western edge is the western edge of New Mexico, and the eastern edge is over in Virginia, right? So it, that's a really large a lot of area, a lot of area in between. There. So there's a lot of answers to that. Uh, I do travel a lot. I do talk to a lot of our constituents and it's my sense that Texas had a pretty solid season. The playas, which are in the Western Northwestern part of Texas and parts of New Mexico and Kansas uh, were pretty historically wet. That doesn't happen, but one year, uh, two years and seven, something on the order of that. Um, when they get wet, birds tend to respond to those landscapes there's not very many hunters there, which actually adds to their success because they, they have less competition for the 
primo spots to do that. But it looks to me like Texas in all of its landscapes had a pretty good duck season, whether it's the Oaks and Prairies in the middle of Texas or along the coast. It seems as though the central flyway part of the southern region really, really had a nice season. I would say about as good as it's going to get. Um, as you move east into Louisiana and Arkansas, it seems more spotty, more discontiguous people's satisfaction. Um, you talk to somebody and they're, they're loving it and you talk to the, somebody else and they, it's awful. And I can't really explain that. Um, some of that has to do with the, the changing people tend to hunt the places that they've always hunted and birds, they move around um, they don't always go the same places. And then that makes people say things like the flyway move, you know, you and I'll hear oh, that yeah. a lot. Maybe not. Maybe so. Right. Yeah. It, it, people's perspective extends only as far as they can see, which is only a few miles when they're in the duck blind. And then as you move uh, further east into uh, into the region ac- across and uh, past the Mississippi Valley into the into the South Atlantic uh, there, it seems that I think the expectation framework is different. Um, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas hunters have an expectation of a bounty of birds. And as you move to the east, it's less so. And so they're, they tend to be more satisfied with just, a, just another duck season. And, um, and so I, hadn't, I haven't heard a lot of complaints from that sector, which could be because they killed a lot of birds or because their expectations are different. Yeah, it's always it's very difficult to read, to know how to read and interpret the information that you're getting. Every year there are going to be some people that have a very, very poor duck season. You're, you're going to hear from, from those people. A lot of times it's the, the folks that are uh, experiencing the least amount of success that naturally are most um, – are most frustrated and they're the ones that we we hear from. It's just the same thing in any aspect of our lives. We have a tendency more times than not, I think, to express our frustration than it is than we do to express our, our pleasure, uh, our satisfaction. It doesn't matter if we're eating at a restaurant. You know, how many times have you called the waiter back or the server back uh, to talk about, oh, how great the meal was, go out of your way to talk about how great the meal meal was. There inherently is some sort of bias towards those that are most frustrated with a certain outcome. So as a scientist, that's why I say this, one of the worst questions possible you can ask if I'm going to try to use information that I'm getting from people that I'm hearing voluntarily um, is because I know that's uh, that's more than likely a biased sample that's not reflective of everybody. The people that are doing really well kind of keeping their mouth, you know, th- their mouth closed and not sharing some of their success sometimes. But, but you are right. We have heard some of the, some of the comments and some of the frustrations don't mean to dismiss any of the, any, any of the uh, observations of, of, uh, of folks in certain parts of our, or throughout our, throughout the country that are, and they have legitimate questions about, hey, what are we seeing? And those are questions that are of interest to us as scientists and biologists as well. And I can, as as we've shared on past episodes, those questions are getting asked throughout the flyways. Uh, I was at those in the Central Flyway last week talking with some of their biologists, and you know, to hear them go around the the table and talk about what they saw, what they heard from their hunters and from their survey numbers, it kind of makes you scratch your head and say, well, where are all the, where are all the ducks? You know, as the question goes, and I think, I think ducks are just very remarkable at taking advantage of, of habitats and try and avoiding, uh, avoiding disturbance, trying to avoid us that are trying to kill them. We talked about my history when we started this. And one of the things that Sam Walton said that's drilled into my brain is that, 
if you make somebody happy, they won't tell anyone. If you make somebody mad, they'll tell 10 people. Yeah. Just underlines what you yeah. said earlier. And one of the things I, I think is we're talking about in terms of hunter success is the conversation I've had with Arkansas hunters is, hey, we saw lots of birds. In yeah. stark contrast to last year. We saw lots of birds, but boy, we really had trouble getting them to work, right? We had, they were, they were decoy shy, call shy in the first two weeks of the season. And so um, as one of DU's experts on this subject, what can you tell uh, us and the audience about um, why why we would happen to have a year where we saw lots of ducks, but boy, they were very uncooperative. I actually experienced that in Arkansas. I had the... Um I had the pleasure of, of hunting with some friends in, in Arkansas, and we did see a lot of ducks, and it was exactly that. They would they would look at the decoys, and they would swing by a few times, and you think they're going to commit, but they just never would. And and I even saw it in Mississippi as well when I hunted there the last week or the next to the last week of the season. And to me, that's a telltale sign of at least uh, one of two things, if not both. Yeah, number one, those birds have been in the area for a while, and weather conditions were not such that they're uh, – weather conditions were mild. They didn't have to forage as much for thermal regulatory purposes. You know, the colder it is, the more they have to eat in order to sustain a given body mass, body condition. Um, and in order to find food, they have to move around. They can't just – you know, resources in a given area are finite, so they have to move around to find additional resources. So that's one thing. We're dealing with a mild winter. That's going to kind of reduce the amount of time they have to uh, to forage. So it could have been there for a while, mild conditions. But then the other thing that I think plays a role is, and increasingly we're able to sort of show this with some some data comparisons, is the, the age ratio in the population, number of young birds in the population. Our snow goose hunters will be able to speak to this firsthand better than anyone, is that when you have a lot of, a, a lot of adults, when you have few juveniles in the population, your success is going to be down. You're going to be way challenged to, uh, to to have good success chasing snow geese. We had Drew Fowler on earlier, one of the first episodes in the podcast, and he talked about that, how a lot of the snow geese that we harvest, even in the spring, are in poorer condition. Uh, even if they're adults, you know, they're among the poorer condition birds. Um, but uh, but but yeah, overwhelmingly, your success is going in that case is going to be tied to the number of juveniles in the population. And so we've had a couple of dry years on the prairies, and I think that's increasingly we just need to do a better job communicating our understanding of how these numerous factors. There's no single factor that is driving this. There are at least half a dozen very strong factors that we can point to that are controlling or helping to control what birds are doing, you know, uh, at a local scale as well as at a larger landscape scale. And it's, again, as a scientist, you want to be able to provide the precise answer. But when you're dealing with the population of birds, uh, the type of uh, bird that migrates across such vast landscapes, there are invariably a number of factors that are influencing what those, uh, what those animals do. So, Exciting but challenging, like a lot of things in our field. So I've been hunting in Mississippi for, I guess I started in the 99-2000 season was the first year. And I've hunted in Mississippi most of the years between there. And one of the things I've seen is speckle-bellies or wide-fronted geese become becoming more a part of the bag, and more part of the sport. And they're, for me personally, super exciting birds to hunt. It took me probably three years to even be adequate at calling them. And um, so they've sometimes the changes in distribution of waterfowl are favorable 
And sometimes they're not. Depends on where you are. There's, I think I've heard our chief scientist say, anytime you talk about changes in distributions of birds, whether it be whether it be uh, migratory waterfowl or some other group of migratory birds uh, that that are hunted or, or whatever the case may be, there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. What we've seen with greater snow geese moving from historically their their numbers being most strong down on the Texas coast, eastward into Louisiana, and then northward into the Mississippi alluvial valley. Uh, it, it tracks very well the shift in rice agriculture that we've seen across that landscape. That much is for sure. But, uh, you know, the white fronts are doing well as a population. And, and increasingly, I hear them flying over our house in western Tennessee. And it's like, my goodness, this is, this is kind of exciting. Jerry, you and I could probably continue a conversation about duck hunting and dog training and, and whatever the case may be uh, for quite some time. But this is probably a natural place to bring this episode to a close. I know we still have uh, material, or a lot of things to cover on the southern region from a conservation priority standpoint, conservation challenges standpoint, and also just want to talk about some of the um, some of what you find most rewarding at working in the southern region, working with Ducks Unlimited in general, and all of our volunteers and supporters. So that's uh, we're going to end this particular episode here, and so folks can tune in sometime in the future to catch the other episode that we'll record. So Jerry, thanks for your time. Glad to be here. Special thanks to our guest on today's show, Jerry Holden, Director of Operations for Ducks Unlimited Southern Region. We certainly appreciate him taking the time to sit down with us here in studio and discuss a range of topics. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great job that he does in getting the podcast edited and out to you. And also, the most important part of this venture is you, the listener. We thank you for your time and spending it with us. And we most importantly, thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.